Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM, brought to you this time by ExpressVPN. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Mr. Jason Snell. I am not a rocket scientist, Stephen, so that's no. good news. You're an iPhone scientist. Hmm. Sometimes. Weather scientist. That, I feel like there's a different word for that one. Meteorologist. Nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> you, sir. Yes. Are a uh, a mole, a Mars mole enthusiast. I'm not going to say scientist, but you are a Mars mole enthusiast. And this is... We are entering our pre-fight checklist items, and yet I feel like we could almost have this be a regular segment on Liftoff called What is Going On with the Mole? Mole the News! The Mole Hole. So that's, that's what we're going to call the segment. It's the Mole let's Hole. Not, let's not that's call right. it that. Uh, I have good news for Team Mole. Oh, yay! I love that's my favorite kind of mole news is good mole news. Well, it's nice because uh, Insight's mole temperature sensor, what we're talking about, this big heat probe, it's been nothing but bad news. <laughs> For like the last year. Um, but there is some good news. So we, we've spoken about this a bunch before where the InSight lander on Mars has this 16-inch long heat probe. supposed to hammer itself down into the surface, like 16 feet below the surface. Uh, but they had a lot of trouble with that. It made it a little way down. And then they had what they called the pop-out event where it popped out of the red planet like some sort of jack-in-the-box. They've mm. tried a bunch of different things to put this back. They tried putting the scoop on the end of InSight's big uh, instrument arm to apply sideways pressure to the mole. They also tried pushing it down. You have to be careful with that because there's this t- tether that has all the cables. You know, it's, I think it's a USB-C cable probably. It's not a USB-C cable. Mm. But um, the, the cable's back to the lander. You got to be careful with that. So anyways, the good news is the InSight team has gotten its temperature probe completely buried in the surface. It has got a long way to go to 16 feet below the surface. Uh, if they make it to 10 feet, it can start to gather data, but it's uh, it's a long ways away from that. So they're going to evaluate where they are, and they're going to restart the hammering operation where it could self-dig probably in January. Uh, one thing they have to wait for is... Uh, the wind to pick back up, which sounds a little silly, but uh, there's dust collection on InSight solar panels, which is to be expected. Um, and after, towards the end of our year, uh, there should be enough wind to clear those things off and have more power available to the entire lander, and then they could start uh, the mold digging again. So the hope is that through this process of it coming out and then them retrying it, that whatever caused this in the beginning, maybe it was a rock beneath the surface. They're not really sure, but hopefully they can avoid that. And hopefully it's smooth sailing from here on out. You know, mole is a bunch of baby steps trying to get this mm. thing back buried again. But this is a, uh, this is good news and a big step in the right direction. Yeah, maybe there's just a big rock down there. Thwarted by a rock you can't see. That happens in my backyard all the time. My my backyard soil has lots of uh, giant rocks in it because our, our house is basically built on a little bit of fill. And um, in order to level the, the lots, and it's super rocky. And it's that, you know, you go down there and you're like, oh, mm, can I drill this somewhere else? Because there's gi- a giant rock here. And uh, it would be, it just happens. So bad luck for... Uh, for the mole, but good luck for the mole. 
because maybe we've got it right now. Yeah, and this this team at JPL and, and at NASA, they've worked mm-hmm. a long time on getting this sorted out. Right? We keep checking in on the story because it's so interesting. And we've said this before, you can't go fix it. You can't you can't no. move inside. It's a lander. If anybody can go up there and uh and fix the mole, let us know. But yeah. Uh, it's unlikely that anybody's going to spare SLS in your backyard. Uh, and so they've got to, they got to, you know, make this work and they're going to exhaust all the opportunities and, uh, and ways they have, which is one reason they stepped up from pressing on the side of it to pressing down on the top of it, which was riskier. They want to go through all those steps in the right order. And I'm sure there was lots of celebration when that image came back, showing that it was finally fully under the surface. And that's this edition of Mole News. Mole News. Mole News. Mole News Network. Now, on to Venus. Um, another pre-flight item. We told you last time about this, or I guess two times ago, because we talked to Katie Mack last time, about this idea that they had found some uh, some potential life signatures in the atmosphere of Venus. Little uh, A new thing that's sort of, sort of related that was announced, which is a team of researchers saying they've seen uh, glycine, which is an amino acid in the atmosphere. So so we saw uh, phosphine. We told you about that uh, a month ago. Um, uh, that is a much str- more suggestive biosignature. Um, this is uh, less so, but it's still kind of potentially related and interesting. So the lead author of this, uh, of this study is uh, Arjit Mana, who is from um, Mi- uh, what is it, Midnapore College in West Bengal, India. Uh, it's a preprint, so it needs to be peer-reviewed. But uh, the idea here is that they've spotted glycine, which is one of the uh, known amino acids. It, it exists in other forms. It's not a biosignature. A biosignature is when you say, aha, this is a thing that only life could have created. Um, and phosphine is actually more along those lines on right. that spectrum than, than this is. Um, but still, it's an important building block of protein, some of the first organic molecules to appear on the Earth. And where they found this glycine is in about the same area where uh, the previous study found phosphine. Now, this is uh, not hard evidence of life by any account, so probably not aliens. Again, just so Dang far. it. Our watchword here. Mm-hmm. Um, the spectroscopic signal of glycine is close to sulfur oxide, so it's possible that there's just an error. It's only a single detection. It hasn't been duplicated or verified. Um, and it's the simplest of the amino acids and has been found elsewhere, including on comets and meteorites where there's no life at all. So again, not a biosignature, but I think more interesting fodder when we're considering weird chemistry, like because that phosphine result... We said probably not aliens, but what it does mean is we don't understand why it's there, if it is really there, and how it could have gotten there. And so that ends up becoming kind of a chemistry problem about like what, how did this particular uh, chemical get there? And so then you make a, a detection like this, and it adds to the story of what might be happening in Venus's atmosphere. And that's kind of interesting. But not aliens. We'll keep an eye on Venus. It, it's, it's a planet. It's up there. We'll... When it's on this side of the sun, we'll keep an eye on it for you and let you know what else we <laughs> uh, we find out. Yeah, super interesting. And I, I think the reason this probably gained traction before it was fully finished is because of the discovery announced last month, right? This is building on 
on that, yeah, it's it's super exciting. And you know, this would this would be if it all pans out and there there is uh, life at Venus. Obviously, something very, in a very different situation than what we're used to, right? Because you're, we're talking in the atmosphere, because you can't, as far as we know, uh, nothing on the surfaces has much of a chance at Venus. Yeah, exactly. It's not a nice place, the surface of Venus. No. I have some uh, real-time prefect stuff. Yeah, we got, we got comet action or asteroid action happening right now, like yes. Bennu. Osiris-Rex is at Bennu, and it's going to, you know, boop it, poke it, (laughs) uh, sample it very scientifically. Yeah, that's right. So as of our recording this, like as I'm speaking right now, in about three hours, Osiris-Rex will make its first run at carrying out its sample collection. Uh, Osiris-Rex has been chasing down the asteroid Bennu, and there were issues when they got there. So this this was chosen in part because all the imagery and all the information we had about this asteroid from from here, from our vantage point, was that it would be very beach-like, like lots of fine-grained material, and that makes it a pretty good target for a sample return mission. You can just go up to it, and how this works is the spacecraft has a robotic arm. At the end of that arm... There's a cartridge of um, of nitrogen, and so they blast that nitrogen gas at the surface, and then it collects some of the material that gets blown, you know, blown off the surface. And if it's sandy beaches, then that's not that uh, big of a deal. It, the material should respond well. It should it should break free pretty easily. But when they got there, it turns out that this asteroid is is way rockier than anticipated. So they spent extra time circling the asteroid, creating 3D maps of it, creating this big catalog. You got to do that for a couple of reasons. One, you don't want your OSIRIS-REx spacecraft bumping into something on the asteroid, right? If it's coming in for a sample collection and it smashes into the side of a boulder, bad news. Boy, this is like a theme with the mole, right? Which is just like rocks getting in the way. You don't want that. Rocks are always the problem. Man. Space is full of rocks. Oh, Turn, I mean, it's really turns not. Turns out, it's, yeah. <laughs> but but there are enough of them to be annoying. <laughs> uh, the other issue is that OSIRIS-REx has to do this basically on its own. It takes 18 minutes to get signal to OSIRIS-REx uh, because of the distance. And so you can't fly this remotely. It, it has to have all of this knowledge on board. And so they created these maps. The spacecraft learned where it could go. They programmed it. They found this crater they're calling Nightingale, where the sample will be taken. So it's a, a large, flat area, so they can come in, do this do this sample collection, hopefully, and then get back out away from the surface before you get into any of those, those big boulders and big rocks. Um, but Nightingale also has the potential uh, to f- for water and even carbon molecules based on the readings that they've made. So it seems like a really sweet spot for this sample collection to take place. Uh, we mentioned that today is the the first take at this. They can have up to three runs at this. There are three canisters of nitrogen gas that they can use. Uh, they've said they're not going to deploy that gas in, until the spacecraft, the spacecraft is programmed not to deploy the gas until they, it knows that it has made contact with the surface, that its robotic arm is touching. 
And if for some reason this uh, doesn't work out, so they, they, it can't get in there or it can't make contact or it makes contact and surface material doesn't come back up as expected, they have two more shots uh, and they have enough fuel to stay there until uh, May of next year before they have to do the return part of the sample return flight. So it, even if today's not successful, they have more shots as long as it doesn't hit a boulder. And it's it's really exciting. We've covered this mission for a long time now. And sample return missions are always special because there's not that many of them. And having material back from this asteroid back on Earth in a couple of years uh, would really give us a lot of information about the early stuff in the solar system because that's what asteroids are. It's, it's leftover material from the formation of the planets and the moons that those planets have. So uh, it is a very exciting time. Um, if you're listening to this as it comes out today, like it's happening this afternoon, um, and we will definitely follow up on this next time to let everybody know how it went. But it is it is a really exciting day for that team, I'm sure. Yeah, it's big. This is, I mean, they've been hanging out by this asteroid for so long now. Like it's a being involved in space, you need to be a patient per- person, mm-hmm. a very very patient person. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot it of takes the, a long time, a yeah. long time to plan, a long time to launch, a long time to travel, and then in this case, a long time. I mean, you talk about the mole, and and waiting months between different things. Like you, you have to be careful, but it means you need to be patient. And so mm-hmm. we've been talking about this, and they've been working up to this for a long time. And um, again, they can still stay there for months. So yeah, be patient. Yeah, when you're a lot on an of asteroid, these, be patient. A lot of these missions are, you know, huge chunks of people's career. You know, we spoke about that when we covered Voyager, that there are people who worked on Voyager for decades, right? And and that is it's a big deal. And so I, I can't I can't imagine waking up this morning and knowing this is a day has to be just a whole bundle of emotions. Oh, I've got one more. And then we'll we'll, we'll say we're done with the pre flight and we'll launch ourselves into space. Because uh, that's how that works, right? Um, so NASA's doing something interesting with suborbital flights. Maybe this is how we can launch ourselves into space. Suborbital flights. So uh, on a commercial vehicle, you know, this is the one, the one that uh, people have talked about a lot is uh, Virgin Galactic doing their Spaceship Two flights where you go up and, you know, way up. You are above the line for being considered in space. And then you come back down to Earth. Uh, but you're not going in orbit or anything. And in, in the case of Virgin Galactic, you're actually dropping from a, a plane and then a, a rocket is firing and taking the craft up and then it glides back down. So we mentioned a while ago that there's this thing called the suborbitable, the, boy, easy to say, isn't it? <laughs> suborbital crew program or sub C. And the idea here is that NASA is looking at ways to do experiments that don't actually need to be in orbit. They don't need to go to the International Space Station. They just need some time in a zero-G environment because that's the part that they need to test is what happens at zero-G. And you can get zero-G for a pretty you know, decent, short, but decent amount of time in one of these suborbital launches. And so NASA has been talking about this suborbital crew program for a little while now. And here we are. NASA announced last week that it's funding an experiment that will do a couple of things. It's going to take a camera that's designed to work at low light levels, and they want to test it out to see how it could be used for astronomical imaging, and also a set of biomedical sensors that are intended for people who are on space missions. 
need to test this in zero G. Mm-hmm. The big news here is that in addition to that equipment, uh, which is going to go on a Virgin Galactic suborbital flight, NASA is going to send a person into space on a Virgin Galactic flight to use the camera and wear the sensors. So it's the first instance of a, of a, a suborbital crew mission, uh, still in the planning stages, no dates yet or anything like that. And the funny thing about this story is the person is not a NASA astronaut, although technically, if NASA sends somebody into space, are they not an astronaut, sort of, Seems at like that it. point? Even if all you have to do is show up and sit in your seat? And do your mission? Are they just a passenger and not an astronaut? I don't know. We're going to have to work it out. But it's a familiar person because it's Alan Stern, who most of you probably know as Mr. Pluto. Um, He's the head of the New Horizons mission to Pluto and beyond. And uh, uh, he has actually been a big advocate for suborbital research for at least a decade. Um, And he's the first of several researchers from the Southwest Research Institute that is hoping to go on one of these suborbital rides for various kinds of suborbital zero-G research. So Alan Stern may be going into space. Uh, And also in the queue for Virgin Galactic, three Italian researchers are uh, signed up to go on a Virgin Galactic flight, and that's paid for by the Italian Air Force. It's unclear when all of this is going to happen. Uh, Virgin Galactic's planning a test flight with two pilots and some non-human research payloads later this fall, so they're still gearing up, and it's going to take a little bit. But uh, Alan Stern, who talked to us about what uh, Pluto looked like for quite a while there as New Horizons was motoring on, uh, may get another adventure here into uh, space just a little bit to test out some sensors and a camera that's really exciting alan stern is is definitely one of those people in this industry that is a he's an excellent communicator i mean when talking about new horizon watched a lot of interviews with him and i think that also makes him good for something like this that he can become an advocate for these sorts of missions and, and maybe even virgin galactic's technology itself i don't know it's i'm pumped about this i'm excited to see this uh take off yeah we'll see all right, let's take a break, and uh, and then we will keep going further into space. How does that sound? Fantastic. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by ExpressVPN. There's a documentary on Netflix a lot of people have been talking about called The Social Dilemma. It focuses on how people use social media and how the companies that run those services learn so much about us based on the information that we give them. In the documentary, Tech Insiders explain how social media is engineered to exploit users' data for profit. It's called surveillance capitalism, which is a phrase I just, I don't like. Uh, when I go to the store to buy something, I want my transaction to start and end there. Uh, our data is our data. No one should make money from it against our our wishes. Uh, this is a huge reason to use something like ExpressVPN. Every time you use the internet, big tech companies, your ISP, they can mine your data by tracking your searches, messages, and video history. But when you run ExpressVPN on your devices, it hides your IP address, which websites can use to personally identify you, and that makes your activity more difficult to trace and sell to advertisers. Of course, you still need to be cautious about what you share on social media, but ExpressVPN can make your web browsing more anonymous. It encrypts 100% of your internet data to keep you safe from hackers and prying eyes, the best part is, while many VPNs slow down your browsing, ExpressVPN is incredibly fast and easy to use. 
you just tap one button and you're protected. And that's no joke about the speed. I run ExpressVPN super often and I have streamed video. I've even done <laughs> Twitch streaming over ExpressVPN. It is really fast. So if you don't like the idea of tech companies, companies like your ISP exploiting your personal information, go to expressvpn.com slash liftoff where you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn.com slash liftoff to protect your data. One last time, expressvpn.com slash liftoff to learn more. Our thanks to ExpressVPN for their support of the show. It's time, Jason. All right. Oh, boy. Here it is. Are you ready? Space launch system segment explaining geopolitics, mechanical systems, engineering achievements, news, and trivia. SLS segment. It's the SLS segment featuring Stephen Hackett. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Stop me if you've heard this before, but the green run for the SLS is on the schedule. Oh. Was that you stopping me? I mean that's sort of a short segment no. if I can't finish it. No, I'm I'm I, I agree, yes. It's it's on. It's on. It's on. It's on. They might actually do it. <laughs> yes. Mid-November. Uh so technicians have been working through planned tests. The most recent one was a couple weeks ago. Um, the practice countdown, which we spoke about. Uh, but this does put the green run on the schedule for about a month from now. They want to get it done before Thanksgiving. This, of course, is the full firing of the Stages 4 RS-25 engines, which are upgraded shuttle main engines. The RS-25 has a long service history. Uh, unfortunately, these RS-25s will not be coming back because the SLS is a one-way trip. It is not reusable. Uh, so there are going to be some historic... Uh, shuttle engines that uh, have one more flight in them, <laughs> and, and then they're done. Um, but these four will go through this full firing test. Once it's complete, technicians will refurbish the core stage, take it off the test stand, and then ship it to Kennedy Space Center in mid-January or so. So it'll go on the big Pegasus barge and make its way all around the coast to Kennedy uh, this has been slowed down thanks to COVID, but also hurricanes. So Stennis Space Center is in southern Mississippi. It's not that far from the coast, really. And that uh, has put it in the path of several storms uh, this season. I know this because I'm north of Stennis Space Center, and much, many of those storms have made it all the way up here. <laughs> and so we've had uh, lots of bad weather um, coming up through from the Gulf and across the, the southern part of the U.S., and that has definitely put a damper on this. Uh, but they feel like they're clear of that stuff now, and so mid-November hopefully will be uh, that green run. I'm really looking forward to this. It'll be on, uh, you know, streamed on NASA TV and everything. I think it'll be really exciting to see the SLS kind of take its first breath as a as a new rocket. Yeah, Fire, fiery breath. But yeah, this is a no. This is a big milestone for the SLS. It's been it's slow in coming, but it has been a, it's a big deal. Uh, we also need to talk about the worm. So I had missed this. This this story is a couple weeks old now. We did talk about it in terms of the commercial crew program where NASA it has brought back the the worm logo, even though it was officially retired in 1992. It's kind of made its comeback in this new mm -hmm. era of human spaceflight. It was the logo, of course, that um, there was the meatball and the went to the worm and the back at the meatball. I can also never remember which one of us likes the worm or the meatball more. So... 
There's that. I think you're the worm guy, right? Historically, I was pro meatball and you were pro, pro worm. I was pro worm. Okay. But I do own a worm t-shirt. Yes. So I, I'm not anti-worm. So okay, apologies for a very slight digression that I think I maybe have made before into sports. But a lot of sports teams have, well, you like some sports. You yeah. just don't like the best sport, which is baseball. Anyway, Ugh. some sports teams um, have, and, and as a basketball fan, you know this, especially because the NBA has like five different uniforms. What I'm saying is in sports, you often have the primary and the alternate, right? Yes. And then you use the alternate as uh, as seasoning. You know, it, it's a nice, like, we'll throw it in. And then people are like, oh, they're wearing the alternates. It's great. Or that logo that I don't normally see, but now I'm seeing it. Oh, it's cool. Yeah, like a, like a throwback jersey almost. Right. So what NASA seems to be doing with the worm is basically saying that the meatball is their primary and the worm is their alternate. And I'm a, I think actually that's great. I didn't like the worm as NASA's only ID because... It's very 70s. It is. To say, like, we're stuck in the 70s, not the greatest feel. Now, the, the meatball, kind of very 60s, but it's so old now that it's it's almost, you know, it's retro. Mm-hmm. But uh, having the meatball as the primary and then having the worm as this great alternate thing that people are like, oh, yeah, like on the space shuttle, that's so great. Like, I feel like it takes so much um, pressure off the worm logo. So that's my that's my feeling about the worm today is I don't hate I prefer the meatball but I actually love the worm logo now because it's not a representation of NASA seeming like stuck in the past instead mm-hmm. it's more like a celebration of you know this cool retro alternate logo so yeah what I'm saying is I bought the t-shirt yeah and I have a meatball hat so it all it all pans there out there you go uh, yeah so it's been painted on the side of a couple of the segments of the solid rocket boosters for the first SLS so it will be there uh, as part of that mission uh, yeah I agree with you I think the alternate uh, is a is a good way of thinking about it I mean with the commercial crew like on the SpaceX suits it's sewn on the front uh, instead of the meatball uh, the meatballs on the on the uh, shoulder. I believe the left shoulder, if I remember correctly. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, lots of fun stuff. Uh, I do like that it's popping back up, and I agree with you. I like the, I like thinking about it as a uh, a celebration moment because it it was it was ushered in really through the shuttle, and and yeah, I think that was an exciting time in the history of the space program, and they want to relive some of that. So, yeah, I think it's cool too. I do. Plus, it just, it, I think it looks better on the side of a rocket than the meat, than the meatball does. I'll give it that. Yeah, I think you're right. Mm-hmm. I have the uh, a, a remake of NASA's graphics manual. I forget what year it's from. I can't I can't see it from where I'm recording, but it's sometime in the 70s or 80s, and it's all about like how you put the worm logo on the side of a van or on a shirt or a hat or something. And it was really fascinating uh, to see all of that stuff. So they they used it for a long time and. And uh, now it's coming back a little bit. It's good. Yes. It's good. Um, let me shift gears a little bit. We got one more topic, and it's about China. We don't talk about China a lot, uh, partially because there's a limited amount of information that the government in China puts out. But there was right. this story that I found that I thought was kind of interesting and worth at least mentioning, which is about commercial space in China. Um, so there's a large state-owned enterprise so how commercial is it? I don't know. Chinese Aerospace Service and Industry Corporation, KSIC. 
and they laid out a new set of commercial space plans for the next five years. They are a sister company to China Aerospace Science and Technology Corp., which is the main contractor for the country's civilian and military space efforts. Okay. So there's a the whole combination of like different Chinese contractors, essentially. Yeah. I went I went way down that rabbit hole trying to like work out because it is <laughs> state owned, but it's viewed as commercial. But it yeah. partners with other government agencies, but also a bunch of non government it's very Yeah. It's it's a at least different on the outside the lines are very blurry. We are in a country that has very large uh, aerospace contracting firms, right, that that get a lot of money from the government and provide services to the government. But they're not owned by the government. Right. Or, right. So that that's like a different thing. But anyway, they're made up of six different research institutes, 150,000 employees. Um, again, mostly commercial, somewhat separate. So it's one of those cases where, as a lot of Chinese entities are, they're, they're viewed as being able to operate autonomously in a... a a, a commercial way, a business-like way, even though ultimately the uh, the government is in uh, it, it has ownership, even if they allow them to sort of like behave autonomously. But anyway, in the next five years, they, they say KSIC will improve the capability of the commercial aerospace system, shorten the preparation time for and enhance the frequency of commercial rocket launches, and conduct further research into the reuse of launch vehicles to lower costs, according to the chief technologist at KSIC. So reusable launch vehicles. Definitely an interesting thing that we've seen with SpaceX, especially as being a way to really uh, decrease the price of access to space. Um, KSIC says that they plan to double the rate of launches of the uh, Kwajau series rockets by 2023. They started flying in 2013. They make heavy use of solid rocket tech. There are also heavy lift variants in the works. Um, their newest design did not work Mm-mm. earlier this year, but that's it's space. They're working on it. It was the first launch of the of their updated rocket, yeah, and it, it failed. But hey, who hasn't had a <laughs> a failure in development? Exactly right. Exactly right. So they're also testing a two stage to orbit reusable space plane system, which is really interesting. By twenty twenty five. So the idea here is that they have this reusable space plane part that can glide back down, and uh, and then you put it back on and launch it. And there has been lots of speculation about Chinese space planes lately. So there's definitely work in that mm-hmm. area going on in China. That, you know, but it's it's a a shuttle like or dream chaser like thing that uh, takes off horizontally. Um, and uh, oh, actually, it's not. So it's horizontal takeoff, horizontal landing. Is that yes. right? Yeah. They oh, both. interesting. So, so do they drop it out of a plane, or do they like uh, fire it off from the ground? <laughs> what do they do? That's I assumed it's dropped from a plane. Yeah. But that seems again, to... details are fuzzy. <laughs> yeah, details are fuzzy. So it's horizontal takeoff, horizontal landing. So like yeah. Dream Chaser, the idea is it's on the top of a rocket going right. up, and then it lands horizontally. So this is more probably a plane that takes it up, and then like the uh, like the Virgin Galactic, mm-hmm. you drop it off and fire off a right. rocket that takes it out into orbit from there. That's my impression at this That's point. That's probably what it is, unless there's a mistranslation and it really is a vertical takeoff. But who knows? We don't know. That's one of the points. That's actually why I wanted to do this segment is I feel like we we talk so little about what China is doing. And there's a, there's a lot of difficulty seeing into what China is doing in space. But uh, it's important that we have some awareness of it. So uh, even though it's hazy, we're trying to uh, take our information where we can get it, like in this story about about what the Kasich 
uh, company is doing. They're also working on something that's kind of like Starlink, a constellation of satellites to provide internet access. So get ready for all the world's astronomers to complain even more about competing constellations of satellites floating around out there. Um, and Kasich says they're also working to build out Wuhan National Aerospace Industry Base, which is a large new facility to build and test solid rockets in China. So anyway, there's a lot of stuff going on with multiple players in China. Uh, China definitely sees space as an important strategic area for them. And given that we're in an era where the Russian space program, and this isn't in our, our show notes, but I, I think it's maybe fair to say that the Russian space program is it has more bark than bite at this point. Like hmm. they have been super constrained in terms of their budget. Yeah. And they're going to lose a, a, a financial lifeline in that the Americans have been buying seats on their launches for mm-hmm. a long time now, and they're going to have commercial capacity. So presumably the purchase of those seats will be replaced by some sort of seat trading program. So, you know, without going into too much detail about sort of the sad state of affairs of the Russian space program, where they do a lot of, they're they're doing a lot of uh, new developments involving things that were actually already shown like eight or nine years ago. Like they're, it's, it's a difficult, difficult time, I think, for the Russian space program. But you can see that China has money and interest in being involved in space. And so... Uh, it may be the case where the story of the next few decades in space is uh, waning Russian involvement, but waxing Chinese involvement. So we'll see. Yeah, I do wonder at some point if the U.S. will revisit its legislation about not working with the Chinese Space Agency. Yeah, I I think that is a great open question because... You know, right now, my understanding is that most experts would say that the U.S.-Chinese relationship is actually at its worst point in a long time. But um, get, things can change. Things can change in elections. Things can change in administrations changing mm-hmm. their mind. There are lots of ways that things can change. And when you've got something like Artemis uh, being planned uh, and lining up a bunch of international partners, although we didn't get into that either, but the Artemis Accords may may actually be accords now because several countries actually signed to them. Remember, it's not an accord until countries agree on something, but they <laughs> seem to have done that finally. So the Artemis Accords may actually not just be the Artemis uh, rule proposal, but actual accords. And Russia has complained about that, which is part of this story. But yeah, I do wonder at some point if you're uh, trying to build out the gateway in in its cislunar orbit, if you start to uh, at some point say, why don't we work with China instead of isolating them? Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a decision for a future, not just a future administration, but a future Congress, because it's actually a law that there can be no cooperation between the U.S. and Chinese space programs. So right. we'll see. A lot, lot of news um, going on that we did kind of blow past because we had a whole month worth because we spent all of last time talking uh, to Katie Mack. And uh, and then next time, Stephen, I'm going to have to do the news without you because you are taking next episode off. I am, uh, but we have a very special guest. Yep. Uh, Zach Hall, uh, the founder and editor of Space Explored. He's also a writer from 9to5Mac, uh, will be joining you. I'm really excited to hear that. Uh, Zach yep. has done a, an excellent job getting space space explored uh, up and running. They have really great, great coverage. He's built a great team. So I'm excited to uh, hear the two of y'all next week or next episode. 
next episode two two weeks so we'll uh we'll you'll go away for uh a, a fortnight and yes. then you'll come back so you'll be back episode yeah. after next but we'll have zach hall here in two weeks uh and that's it that's it for this episode of liftoff if you want to find links to the stories we spoke about they're in your podcast player or they're also on the web at relay.fm slash liftoff slash 135 while you're there, you can send us an email with feedback or follow-up. You can also become a member to support Liftoff directly, something that Jason and I both really appreciate. You can find us on Twitter. Jason is there as Snell, and you can find me there as ISMH. And until our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Bye, everybody. Bye, y'all.